Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to seriously consider perhaps the most famous of all scriptures. Yet we know there's more behind it. So we pray that your spirit might be upon us now, illuminating all the subtle nuances that take place in the fact that you so love the world. So help us now to actively listen and critically think so that we can grow in the same radical love that first loved us. All these things I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled today's sermon, Nick at Night, the story behind John 3.16. And for some of you, you might appreciate the Nick at Night reference. And for those of you under the age of 30, probably not. So, John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. I bet all of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world, right? Maybe you have it memorized in the King's English. I have it memorized it. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Right? Even the staunchest atheist, the hardiest evangelist, can recite this verse from memory, though probably with different aims. And given the universal familiarity of this verse, I think it's quite easy for us as Christians to recite verse 16 from memory and forget what the story is behind the famous verse. So today we're going to be considering the conversion story of Nicodemus as part of our sermon series on the chosen. And today's lesson begins with this verse from John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So the Jewish ruling council was also called the Sanhedrin. This was a group of 70 of the most religious elite leaders of Israel. They were the shot callers. They were the ones in charge. And it was also the same group that would hold a makeshift trial in the middle of the night and condemn Jesus to murder or to be murdered. Nick was a part of that group. And Nick appears in the gospel three times. He appears in today's lesson, which occurs during the Passover festival. Then he appears again towards the end of chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles. And then his third and his final appearance comes when he is helping to bury Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea, also at the end of Passover, before the Sabbath began. Now here's an important insight. And listen, if you ain't got the memo yet, today's going to be a heavy teaching sermon. I'm going to be doing a lot of teaching. It's a lot of teaching because I think you need it. I'll do my best to make the teaching entertaining. If I see you starting to nod off, I'll do like a jig or something. Okay? But, but it's heavy teaching because you ought to know this. You want to know this. Okay? So here's an important insight. You see the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These Gospels chronologically order Jesus' life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection. John's Gospel is not in chronological order. Instead, and I think John's beautifully written, his Gospel's theologically ordered around themes of darkness and light, belief and unbelief. So why is this important? 
Well, Jesus cleansed the temple in all four Gospels before the Passover. So Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 2. And if you don't know what I mean by cleansing, I mean this is where Jesus went into the temple. He threw over the tables of the money changers. He chased away those who were extorting money from God's people in God's house. In John's gospel, it even says that Jesus fashioned a whip to clear the temple. Can you imagine Jesus brandishing a whip? That's my kind of Jesus. That's cool. The temple cleansing occurred at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. You with me so far? In other words, the cleansing of the temple occurs immediately after what we would celebrate as Palm Sunday. Okay, so Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The people were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Jesus dismounted the donkey, went to the temple to pray, discovered the evil that was taking place there, and then cleared the temple of evil. Now, look back at the first bullet point of the slide. Notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all chronologically record this story toward the end of the Gospels. But John's 2 is underlined. Because Nick at night occurred after the temple is cleansed. Next slide. Toward the beginning of John's gospel. So here's the implication. And it's kind of cool. The most famous verse in the Bible was likely spoken to Nick during the final week of Jesus' life. Verse 2 appears to support a relationship that's already been developed between Jesus and Nick. It says he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Notice the word signs. It's plural. It's also plural in the Greek. Nicodemus came to Jesus acknowledging that he has already witnessed Jesus perform numerous miraculous signs. It would be impossible for Nick to admit this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Because at this point, at least in John's gospel, really Jesus only turned water to wine at this point, right? Notice that Nick says we. In other words, the plural suggests he's come representing a group of people. Perhaps he's come representing the entire Sanhedrin. Or perhaps he's representing a smaller group of seekers who cannot publicly follow Jesus like himself and Joseph of Arimathea. What is certain, though, friends, is that Nick had a working knowledge of Jesus' extensive ministry. And that's why I believe that this conversation took place during the last week of Jesus' life. So why does Nick come at night? Well, remember, John's gospel is theologically ordered around the themes of darkness and light. Of belief versus unbelief. Nick, he, oh, he had great theological knowledge, but he had no spiritual belief. Nick literally comes to Jesus in the darkness of night, which is also serving as a metaphor for his own spiritual darkness. 
Moreover, the light of Jesus poses a very real threat to the spiritual darkness upon which Nick's entire worldview and his livelihood are built. See, Nick, oh, Nick had power. He had prestige. He had wealth. And he had all those things to lose if he was seen with Jesus, let alone following Jesus. So Nick comes to Jesus at night and he asks the Lord three questions, the first of which begins with rhetoric. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you've done if, 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 if God were not with him. Now, in modern terms, we would liken Nicodemus to a bishop. Y'all know what a bishop is. They're the people that say, Pastor, you go there, you go there, you go there. And then they're also the ones that are like, Pastor, you're now in trouble. You did this, you did that. They do other things too, but you know, that's the abridged version. Bishop, if you're watching, I'm sorry, I didn't mean nothing by that. Thank you for the four of you that laughed. In modern terms, Nick would be likened to a bishop. Okay. He was a person of renown. He had great religious and political power. He was literally a teacher of Israel. He's wise enough to address Jesus as rabbi, even though Jesus has no formal training. See, Nick is attempting to have a conversation with Jesus as though they are equals, but the teacher is getting ready to be schooled by the master. Jesus says, come to the light. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. See what Jesus does there? He doesn't answer Nick's question. He doesn't engage Nick as an equal. Instead, Jesus forces Nick further into the light when he says, truly, truly, amen, amen. I tell you the truth. Come closer. See, Jesus presses Nicodemus on the reality of his soul's relationship with God. The phrase born again means to have a personal soul rebirth to the truth of Jesus' divinity. Jesus is saying that each person must have an experience that transports them beyond merely observing the signs of his divinity to understanding that the signs point to Jesus' divinity. And that only happens by rebirth, which changes our human nature, the human nature of a soul, from death to life, from darkness into light. Nick now asks his second question. How can this be? Surely a man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. It's, it's difficult, honestly, to tell whether Nick was being genuine or sarcastic in his response. Perhaps it was a little of both. But underneath the surface, Nick is likely asking, can human nature really be changed? Can our souls really be reborn? So Jesus presses Nicodemus further. He says, come closer to the light. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, the concept of water and spirit would not have 
been a new concept for a teacher of Israel. It was used as a metaphor throughout the Old Testament for spiritual renewal, and it could only come by the grace of God. Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, would have been very familiar with words of prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel, who wrote these words, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, Jesus is saying to Nick that a new age of God has arrived. The Spirit of God is now going to wash over the entire world, opening the eyes of hearts to spiritual darkness and transforming dead souls with the light of eternity. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's getting ready to lay it out even more. He says, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, Jesus uses the metaphor of wind to describe the movement of God's Spirit. See, God cannot nor will not be controlled by any human institution. God's breath is going to move across humanity in the ways that humanity cannot control. Nick responds with his third question. How can this be? Listen. It's a fair question. Nick's understanding of God and the world has just been turned upside down by the one who created the world. Israel's teacher has come to the light of Jesus under the cover of darkness. Jesus has forced Israel's teacher further and further into the light. And now the Lord says, open your eyes to the light. You are Israel's teacher. And you don't understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I, I have spoken to you of, of earthly things and you do not believe. Then how will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? I love what Jesus does here. He refers to Nick as rabbi, teacher, to highlight the irony that Nick, the teacher, doesn't have all the answers, only Jesus does. Notice that now, for the third time, Jesus uses the phrase, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, amen, amen. It's as if Jesus is saying, Nick, you don't understand because you haven't opened your eyes. You're choosing to stay in spiritual darkness. Truly, truly, I tell you, everything I'm saying to you is real, Nicodemus, and I should know because heaven is my hometown. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. See, Jesus' hometown is heaven. You ever want to go visit where I'm from, let me know. I can tell you all the good places to go. Why? Because that's my hometown. Heaven is Jesus' hometown. Only He can fully disclose the nature of God. And He descended from heaven to accomplish the saving of souls from spiritual darkness. So he continues by saying, look, 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus is teaching the teacher of Israel by using Scripture with which Nick would have been extremely familiar. Nick, remember? Remember when the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness? Remember when the people were overrun by poisonous snakes that were biting them and killing them? Remember God's solution to the problem of their disobedience? Remember that God had Moses fashion a snake out of bronze? Then God had Moses put that snake around a cross and he put that on display for all the nations to see. And all the people had to do, Nick, remember, all the people had had to do was to look at the cross and be saved. Do you remember, Nicodemus? I've brought eternity with me from my home in heaven. All you have to do is open the eyes of your heart. Look at me and believe and your soul will be saved. Nick, at night, come to the light. Open the eyes of your heart and believe. What happens next in the story continues this poetic theme. See who I am. Know why I am here. And receive what I am offering. These three verses, they are the who, the why, and the what of God's story with humanity through Jesus. See who I am, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. The Greek word here is cosmos. It's translated as world here. It's used 78 times in John's Gospel. It's used another 24 in his letter. It's a cool world. If you just reread that and just use the word cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos, how does that change the way you look at it? The word cosmos in the Greek means the order of the universe, the heavens and the earth. Metonomically, it also means the inhabitants of the earth, humanity. You see, friends, humanity is the crown jewel of the cosmos. Created in God's image, yet standing in opposition to our Creator. This opposition, this pride, that's what keeps our souls in darkness. It's self-imposed blindness. And such blindness kills the soul. And God desires that no soul should die. Therefore, he came as Jesus, a form that we could see and begin comprehending if only we'll open our spiritual eyes to see his love. What Jesus offered to Nicodemus, while it transcends academia, it transcends religious institutionalism. Listen, Jesus offers the mystical gift of substance changing our souls with the spirit of God. Hear that again. Jesus offers the mystical gift of substance changing our souls with the Spirit of God. The imperishable God put on a perishable humanity so that our perishable humanity might inherit God's imperishability. 
See, every soul has a hole in it that can only be filled by coming into the light of God's grace and and seeing Jesus for who He is. The only Son of the living God. Nick at night, come to the light. Open the eyes of your heart and believe. See who I am. Know why I'm here. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Listen. Tune back in now, please. This is important. There's different perspectives in Christian theology that kind of inform where we are and how we move forward. But there's one that that I don't think it's true. We're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jesus did not die on the cross to placate his angry father's sense of justice. God came as Jesus and willingly died on the cross to save the cosmos. Why? You ready? Because humanity is angry. We're the angry ones. We're the ones who cut ourselves off from God. It's in our DNA. Every generation does this, and all creation embodies our anger. All creation is crying out for deliverance from our anger and our suffering. The Father didn't kill the Son because He's angry with us. We killed the Son because we're angry with God. The hands, the feet, the side of God were pierced by an angry cosmos so that we could be reconciled through His sacrificial love. Nick at night, come to the light. Open the eyes of your heart and believe. See who I am, know why I'm here, and receive what I am offering. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Listen, listen. It is God's loving nature to offer us the freedom to accept his love, or to condemn ourselves. God has not condemned us. We have. Condemnation is not just a future state. It's a present reality. When's the last time you watched the news? God is offering us the only way out of darkness. Jesus. The judgment of God is that light entered the darkness and exposed the darkness for what it is. Jesus said, this is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but men love darkness instead because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The light of Jesus has entered the darkness not to condemn humanity, but to save us from darkness. Therefore, if we will see the light and recognize the reality of darkness in which we are surrounded, then our choice becomes to live in darkness or believe in light. Darkness versus light. Belief versus unbelief. This, this is the story behind John 3.16. It's the conversion story of Nicodemus, teacher of Israel, from darkness to light, from belief 
to unbelief and belief. Think at night. Come to the light. Open the eyes of your heart and believe. See, I am God. Know I am love. My substance is yours to reject or receive. Now, we don't know for sure if Nick opened the eyes of his heart to believe, but the end of John's Gospel paints a picture of Nicodemus whose spiritual eyes were open and whose heart belonged to Jesus. See, following Jesus' death on the cross, Joseph of the Arimathea and Nicodemus, they buried Jesus. John's Gospel says that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple in secret, who's also a member of the Sanhedrin with Nick, he went to Pilate and said, hey, can we have Jesus' body? So with Pilate's permission, he took the body away and, and guess who accompanied him? Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in spices and strips of linen, and they buried Jesus. John begins by saying, Joseph was a disciple in secret, but you see that all changed. Every bit of that changed the moment he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. See, there's no way for Joseph and Nicodemus to go and claim Jesus' body from a public execution site for burial from Pilate without it becoming public knowledge. They had to get him when it was still a little daylight outside. No, no, no. What was once done in secret had now become out in the light for all to see because their belief brought them into the light. And, and look, you may not know this, but the amount of myrrh and the amount of aloes that Nicodemus brought with him, that 75 pounds worth, that was enough to royally bury a king of Israel. A royal burial. He brought enough aloe and myrrh for a royal burial. Nick at night who came to the light. Believed in Jesus on a later night. After he saw on Calvary. God's love poured out for all to see. So he buried God's son as befitting a king, with aloe and spices, no songs to sing. The new tomb was sealed, and the evening grew colder, but the warmth of God's story was far from over. For God so loved the world, you see, that not even death has the victory. For whosoever believeth in he has life in him for eternity. This is the story of John 3.16. A story for all those walking in darkness who choose to come into the light. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.